Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first Major Mondays webinar of the year, Carve Out Ins and Outs, How to Ensure Maximum Subrogation Recovery in New York MVA Cases. Happy New Year, everybody. There I am. Hello. Good to see you. Uh, as usual, this is a live question and answer session, so feel free to post your questions and we'll get to them at the end. I will note in advance, this is one of the more complex and difficult and confusing topics. So um, roll up your sleeves and prepare to get dirty on this one. So what is New York's no-fault law? We're going to go through the basics very quickly. It's Article 51 of the New York Insurance Law and the mandatory policy endorsements prescribed by uh, 11 NYCRR Part 65, a.k.a. Regulation Number 68. Uh, it applies to accidents arising from the use or operation of a motor vehicle in the state of New York. Why am I doing uh, little quotation marks for each of those? Because believe it or not, they all have a definition. Uh, it provides for first-party benefits and coverage for basic economic loss, also something that is defined, and it bars suits between quote-unquote covered persons. And because there are quote marks there, you guessed it, that's another term that's defined. So let's talk about the overlap with workers' comp claims because that's why we're here today. So Section 29.1a and Section 29.2a, uh, they provide that there's no subrogation or reimbursement rights for the first 50,000 paid in lieu of first-party benefits. And the effect there is a $50,000 carve out to our Section 29 lien. Uh, I get asked all the time, why is this a thing? And if you think about the policy rationale behind it, it actually makes a decent amount of sense. So there's this case, Matter of Granger versus Erdo, which has this language, uh, the harsh unintended result of the claimant becoming a self-insurer for the first 50K only in work-related MVA cases. So what was happening is um, the carrier was paying amounts in lieu of first-party benefits. The claimant was having a third-party action. They were settling it. And then the carrier was saying, hey, claimant, reimburse me for the first 50K. So the claimant, you know, that money otherwise would have been going to them. And instead, it's going back to the workers' comp carrier. And so there was this weird sort of situation where people who were involved in work-related motor vehicle accidents were falling through the cracks. They were the only people in the state of New York, despite the mandatory no-fault coverage, that were self-insurers for the first 50K because they had to pay back the carrier that uh, paid the first 50,000. So Section 29 1A and 2A were literally enacted for that purpose. 1A says no lien, 2A says no subrogation for the first 50K. So we're gonna go into some exceptions, uh, which is, you know, this is where it starts to get a little difficult. So use or operation of a motor vehicle in the state of New York between covered persons. Uh, I wanna make a note here. Basic economic loss is comprised of the first 50,000 from all sources. It says the first 50,000, but it doesn't distinguish the source. Uh, to be very clear about this, there is nothing that says the workers' compensation carrier has to pay $15,000, or sorry, $50,000 by themselves before they have a lien. That is not a thing. Uh, so why, where would this actually pop up? Well, let's say the claimant gets in a really bad accident and they go to the ER uh, and nobody knows it's a comp case yet. And so, um, you know, the, e the no-fault carrier pays for the initial ER treatment bills. Let's say that, uh, you know, it's a catastrophic injury and there's emergency cervical fusion surgery. And all of a sudden you're right over the 50,000. That is the first $50,000 paid in the necessary medical treatment from a motor vehicle accident arise in the state of New York. So in that situation, we actually have a lien from dollar one. Um, pro tip here, get confirmation of this in the consent letter. 
So everyone knows under Section 29.5, our written consent to settle is required for the claimant to do a third-party settlement. Uh, and what we like to include is a little blurb uh, in MVA cases that says, you know, the claimant's signature here too verifies that no other uh, first-party benefits have been paid in this case. If we find out that a PIP carrier is on the hook, and you might be able to find that out from an ISO report or just ask the third-party attorney, uh, we want to get a payment ledger and figure out exactly what they paid because that determines when the 50K threshold is reached. So a pro tip there, just make sure to include that little blurb in your consent letter. Uh, in lieu of first-party benefits, that's indemnity up to 2K per month for not more than three years following the date of loss. That's for the indemnity component. What is a motor vehicle? So this sounds silly, but there's actually a definition to it. Insurance Law 5102F, 5102 has all the definitions. It includes fire and police vehicles, excludes motorcycles, that's going to be relevant in a moment, uh, and it points to VTL 311. Uh, well, VTL 311 points to VTL 125, so we're going down a lovely rabbit hole here, um, but it includes tractor trailers and excludes agricultural equipment, snow plowing other than for hire, and caterpillar crawler type equipment being operated on a contract site. VTL 125, every vehicle operated or driven upon a public highway, which is propelled by any power other than muscular power with exceptions. Practical examples here, uh, being hit by a backhoe on a construction site does not arise from the use or operation of a motor vehicle. Why? Caterpillar and crawler type equipment is excluded, nor is it a vehicle that is operated or driven upon a, a public highway. Luggage vehicles on the tarmac at the airport well, the tarmac at the airport is not a public highway. Uh, and actually that's in New York and New Jersey, that's gonna be owned by the Port Authority. But you know, a luggage vehicle that's just driving from airplane to terminal, delivering luggage back and forth, that's not operated or driven upon a public highway. So in those situations, we would argue no carve out because no motor vehicle accident. What is user operation? All right, now we're even getting more into the weeds here. So there's this case, Walton versus Lumberman's Mutual Casualty Company. I get this question all the time. The mere fortuity of unloading a truck does not support a claim for no-fault benefits. The vehicle must be approximate cause of the injury. So no-fault benefits are unavailable when the party is injured by an instrumentality other than the vehicle itself, uh, victims of intentional torts, for instance. In general, however, courts will look to find no-fault coverage. And then uh, this case from 2006, I actually found very instructive and very helpful, Zakari versus Progressive Northwestern. Uh, the accident must have arisen from the inherent nature of the automobile. It must have ar arisen within the natural territorial limits of an automobile. So uh, unloading, or I'm sorry, use loading and unloading must not have terminated. And the automobile must not merely contribute to cause the condition which produces the injury, but must itself produce the injury. So uh, a good example is, you know, if the claimant is unloading stuff from the back of their vehicle and they're hit while they're doing that, and there's an example of this coming up in a second, um, yes, that's arising from the user operation of a motor vehicle, particularly because it's a motor vehicle that hit them. Um, if the claimant has completed a delivery and is just walking back to their truck, for instance, and they're a pedestrian, uh, and then they get uh, hit with just, you know, a regular old sedan that's not for hire or any of that other stuff. No, um, you know, they're not using a, a motor vehicle. At the, well, that's actually for loss transfer, but, um, you know, user operation of a motor vehicle actually requires the motor vehicle causing the injury or at least being the proximate cause of it. 
So let's go into a, a few examples, and I'll bring up the loss transfer thing in a minute. <clears throat> so these are all in various cases. If you want the citations for them, I can send them to you. They're also in the risk transfer handbook. Uh, a cement chute on a cement truck striking a plaintiff while unloading cement. Yes, user operation. Truck spilling fuel, which causes another vehicle to slip even several minutes later. So a truck is driving along, fuel spills out the bottom, another car comes by uh, and spins out. Yes, uh, user operation. Next strain while lifting box inside of a truck. No. Slipping on ice while leaving a truck. No. Um, the vehicle is the mere situs for the incident. That's not using the vehicle as a motor vehicle. Alighting from a bus into a hole in the street. No. Uh, explosion of a gas stove in a motorhome. No. Failure to escort a patient from an ambulance to a hospital door. No. Pin between the truck and another vehicle while unloading. Yes. Uh, snowmobile striking a parked automobile. No. Uh, and I just want to bring up this section here, 5103B36. Uh, there is an exception for vehicle repair in course of business while on business premises. So, for instance, you know, uh, like a Jiffy Lube, if somebody, if a claimant is working on a car and then, you know, the crane fall, breaks and the car falls and hits the claimant, that would fall within the service exception. So, if it's in one of these situations where we can't call it actual use or operation, then we would argue no 50K carve-out because no no-fault coverage, no amounts paid in lieu of first-party benefits. In the state of New York, yes, this also matters. Matter of McHenry versus State Insurance Fund, uh, there is no 50K carve-out if the accident happens over state lines. Uh, and I cannot be any more emphatic about that. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a New York employer, New York claimant, benefits are paid in front of the New York Workers' Comp Board, it's a New York insurance policy. If the accident happens on the other side of the Hollander-Lincoln Tunnels in New Jersey, Forget it. There's no 50K carve-out. Remember, it has to arise from the use or operation of a motor vehicle in the state of New York. There's this case literally addressing New Jersey, O'Foury versus Green. The fortuitous circumstance of an accident happening in New Jersey negated the requirement for plaintiff to prove a serious injury in their civil case. Uh, note that this also means that loss transfer is not available for out-of-state accidents because no 50K carve-out, no loss transfer, uh, but it is available if the accident it is still available if the accident is in New York and benefits were paid under another state's law. Those, again, would be something analogous to benefits paid in lieu of first-party benefits. Between covered persons. Stedman versus City of New York is the instructive case on this topic. A covered person in an, injured in an accident caused by a non-covered person is entitled to receive first-party benefits, but they can also bring an action against a non-covered person for economic and non-economic loss, so the first 50K and amounts beyond that, um, or for pain and suffering, but the first party benefits provider would have a lien. Uh, the covered person cannot recover twice, and I'm gonna tell you why this is a thing in a moment. So in that case, the carrier had a section 29 lien on the recovery only from the non-covered defendants. Remember, it's between covered persons where this uh, no-fault coverage applies, and let's go back to this concept of amounts paid in lieu of first-party benefits. So always ask yourself, would another carrier be on the hook to pay this if I didn't pay it? So remember the carve-out applies to amounts paid in lieu of first-party benefits. Insurance law 5104B specifically permits a no-fault lien in suits against non-covered persons. Well, if the no-fault carriers get it, why shouldn't we paying in lieu of first-party benefits? The definition of a covered person in insurance law 5102 
injured through the use or operation of a motor vehicle, which has an effect, the financial security required, et cetera, et cetera. So a practical example for you to take home, claimant suing a motorcycle driver, yes to a lien, covered person versus non-covered person. Uh, so insurance law 5104B would let the no-fault carrier recover, so can we. Claimant on motorcycle against a car driver, no to a lien. The definition of first-party benefits, so this actually really matters. The first 50,000 paid in necessary medical treatment, loss of earnings up to 2K per month for not more than three years, uh, and expenses up to $25 per day for the first year. Again, from all sources, figure out if there's been any other PIP paid uh, before you try to determine whether you've reached the 50K threshold. Uh, less 20% of lost earnings, amounts recoverable from SSD, workers' comp, disability, Medicare, and amounts deductible under the applicable insurance policy. Uh, a schedule loss of use award is considered to be part of basic economic loss, except to the extent that the total payments exceed 50K, regardless of the period is, it is attributed to. So you might see an SLU get paid three or four years after the date of loss. If we haven't paid over 50K yet, it doesn't matter. It's pretty much considered part of that first 50,000. But once that, uh, say it's a $75,000 SLU and we've paid $10,000, well, once we pay out 40, the latter 35 is gonna be subject to a lien. Um, note, there is no analogous payment under the no-fault law to a Section 32 settlement. Waiver of meds, believe it or not, is actually barred uh, for the no-fault law. There's a Department of Financial Services um, opinion from the Office of General Counsel saying that, no, you cannot waive the right to no-fault medical treatment. A Section 32 is lienable, even if under 50K has been paid on the case, but it is not subject to loss transfer for that same reason. It's not subject to the carve-out, and the loss transfer allows us to recover carve-out amounts, then it's not subject to loss transfer. Uh, if you're asking yourself, well, you know, wait a tick, I've always been told that uh, the Section 32 is part of the carve-out. Um, why is this a thing? You know, I would just say, I would ask one very simple question. Remember, amounts paid in lieu of first-party benefits. If we don't pay the claimant a Section 32, what other insurance carrier out there is going to pay them a Section 32? The answer is nobody. There is no analogous payment under the no-fault law. And to take it a step further, Section 32 doesn't compensate any period of lost time. Remember, the definition of basic economic loss includes loss of earnings. Nor is it reimbursing a medical provider for necessary medical treatment. It is an amount paid in consideration of the waiver to future workers' comp benefits. So, um, pro tip, because this is an area of significant confusion, include language in your consent letter and your section 32 to eliminate surprise. Something to the effect of carrier seeking loss transfer, claimant agrees that if adverse carrier um, fails to reimburse claim for loss transfer, uh, amounts paid pursuant to the section 32 shall not be construed as amounts paid in lieu of first party benefits. There, now when there's a third party settlement, claimant's counsel doesn't get to go, no, you don't have a lien because you haven't paid over 50K yet. The medical component of basic economic loss. So this actually does matter. It's effectively all medical without limitation as to time, provided that within one year of the data loss, it is quote unquote, ascertainable that further expenses may be incurred as a result of the injury. Translation here, the rare situation where this matters is in a comp case where there is no treatment for the first year for the specific condition at issue. We can argue medical thereafter uh, is not paid in lieu of first party benefits. So um, say for instance, you know, the claimant hurts his knee 
and goes back to work and then later on finds out, you know, at a family party a year later, dude, you could have gotten the schedule loss of use award for that. Doesn't matter that you went back to work. As long as there's some sort of impairment to it, you could have gotten money for it. And then he goes out and gets an attorney and then all of a sudden you guys are litigating a case that's over a year old. Guess what? You have a lien from dollar one on any of the medicals paid. Example where the 2K limit matters. So if you end up paying over $50,000, you would really never argue this point. Why? Um, because if you're arguing that amounts you've paid in the first 50K are not subject to the carve out, then they also don't count toward the threshold. So for instance, if you're paying $3,000 in indemnity a month, and then you say, um, well, only $2,000 of this is subject to the carve out, I have a lien on the latter 1,000. You can't have it both ways. You can't then also add that 1,000 to figure out when you reach the 50K threshold. So this dispute really only arises in cases where you've paid less than 50,000 and you have a third party attorney telling you no carrier, you're not entitled to any money. Uh, so here's a practical example. Carriers paid $45,000 only and the case is closed. We paid indemnity at the statutory max for three months. Uh, over $4,000 per month paid in indemnity. Uh, only $2,000 a month is subject to the carve out. So say 7,500 was paid over the 6K limit, remember three months, $2,000 per month, for the three months. Approximately two thirds, section 29 is subject to reduction for cost of litigation. So approximately two thirds of the 7,500 would be subject to section 29. Meaning even though you have yet to pay over $50,000, when the third party case settles, you would be entitled to 5,000 in reimbursement. Same goes for the time limitation of three years, again, except for SLUs. So where would this come into the case uh, or come into play? If you haven't paid a lot and then there's an LWAC classification, which you know the, the bare minimum of, the, of them go on for several years. Uh, and let's say you know the claimant's a relatively low wage earner, uh, you might find yourself not hitting 50K yet, but still being more than three years removed from the date of loss. The moment that three year mark comes by, you can start offsetting indemnity due to your section 29, three and four indemnity rights, uh, offset rights rather. So how to recover 50K via intercompany loss transfer. Don't worry guys, we're nearing a conclusion. I appreciate you sticking through this. Um, so ordinarily the 50K paid in lieu of first party benefits is not recoverable. Section 29.1A says our sole remedy is insurance law 5105. Note there is a threshold requirement. It's either the livery requirement, which is a vehicle used principally for hire for transportation of people or property. You can see that in the second to last bullet point here, uh, or the weight requirement over 6,500 pounds unloaded. Note that applies to any vehicle in the accident. So I'm going to give you a perfect example. Say there is um, a FedEx truck uh, in the right lane and uh, we have our car driving and then somebody blows a red light and T-bones our car and pushes it into the FedEx truck. Well, the claim is going, the loss transfer claim is going to be against the at-fault carrier, the guy that T-boned us. We still get to make the loss transfer claim because the FedEx truck also got whacked in the same accident. So if any vehicle in the accident qualifies under the waiter livery requirement, that gets you in the door for loss transfer. Um, it, what loss transfer does is it shifts responsibility to the other uh, carrier, the at-fault carrier, as we just discussed, no-fault coverage, not their BI policy. So I, I really have to emphasize this as well. 
Insurance Law 5105C says that the amount recoverable via loss transfer shall not be diminished by any BI policy limits. Why does this matter? Because these third-party carriers, the at-fault carriers, will sometimes pay out the full policy, policy limit, maybe $100,000, in the third-party settlement. And then you'll hit them with a loss transfer demand and they'll go, uh-uh, no, I've paid $100,000 under the policy. I'm not liable to pay any more money. The answer to that is, yes, you are. I'm not making a claim against your BI policy. I am moving my 50K that I paid in lieu of first-party benefits over to your mandatory prescribed policy endorsement of 50K by virtue of the fact that you wrote an insurance policy for automobile coverage in New York. That's why it's called loss transfer, moving the amounts we paid in lieu of first-party benefits up to 50K over to somebody else's no-fault coverage and not their BI policy. So the loss transfer interplay with Section 29. Uh, the carve-out still applies. I have to emphasize this as well. It is a separate right of recovery against the third-party carrier. Uh, loss transfer applying does not grant us a Section 29 lien. Do not confuse that because um, you will lose on that argument every time. If you try and go in front of a court and say, hey, uh, there's a vehicle in this accident that meets the weight requirement, so I have a lien from $1 on this third-party settlement. No, you don't. The carve-out still applies. All loss transfer does is give you an access to the arbitration forums to make the arbitration claim to get reimbursed the first 50K. Um, the first source of recovery, $50,000 less offsets directly from the third-party carrier. Uh, the second source of recovery, again, we're talking in the context of interplay with Section 29. Um, the second source of recovery would be a Section 29 lien on the claimant's settlement. So an example of harmonizing the two of these, say you've paid 100K on the case, you'd get 50K back via loss transfer, and then due to the cost of litigation reduction under the Kelly case, you get approximately two-thirds of 50K back via lien recovery, again, assuming the third-party settlement is adequate to compensate your lien. Um, why is loss transfer better than a lien in a clear loss transfer case with clear liability? Because, number one, you don't have to wait. There's no requirement to wait a year from the date of loss before you serve a 29-2 subrogation notice. You don't have to wait for the claimant to settle their third-party action. You don't need the claimant's participation. Uh, it's literally as you pay the benefits, go ahead and serve the demand. And it's dollar for dollar if the adverse carrier concedes 100% liability um, or if the arbitrator awards 100% liability. Uh, pro tip, yes to a Section 29 lien on recovery from the Motor Vehicle Accident Indemnification Corporation. No to loss transfer against the MVAIC. Why not? Uh, well, they're not an insurer, so they're not subject to the mandatory insurance requirements. Uh, yes to loss transfer against state or municipal entities. That's the state of New York, city of New York, et cetera. Uh, they're usually self-insured for no-fault benefits. Uh, there is no notice of claim requirement for the first 90 days like there would be for a civil case, nor is there any abbreviated SOL. It's still three years from the date of each payment. What you need for loss transfer. So if you take nothing else home, take home this slide. Uh, an accident that qualifies for no-fault coverage. We talked about that, right? arising from the use or operation of a motor vehicle in the state of New York. An existing no-fault policy for the responsible party. Uh, note, again, this is a mandatory policy endorsement in New York, and carriers are all mandatory signatories to intercompany arbitration. It's not an agreement they have to sign off on to arbitrate their disputes. You're a mandatory signatory if you write an insurance policy for auto coverage in the state of New York. You need proof of the qualifier, weight, or livery. 
you need negligence. Loss transfer is not strict liability. It doesn't mean once you have the qualifier, you get 50K back. All this is is a negligence claim at arbitration. So it applies to the extent the other carrier would have been liable to pay damages in an action at law. If you're insured as 50% at fault, you can expect to get back 25,000, not 50. And finally, proof of your damages. You can do this with EOBs, payment ledgers, um, cash checks, uh, whatever, uh, even your uh, Shroy PYs showing that you're paying indemnity benefits, whatever you got that shows that you're paying this stuff out. Normally a payment ledger suffices, Sometimes uh, the adverse carriers are a little more difficult. Once loss transfer applies, then what? This is just the procedure of it. You serve the intercompany reimbursement notification with proofs, payment ledger, police report, whatever else you got. Uh, attempt good faith negotiations thereafter. You have to do both to get access to arbitration. They're prerequisites. The next step is an application to arbitration forms. Again, no fault carriers or mandatory signatories. Uh, the burden of proof in the first instance is on the party filing the application, so you must be able to prove no fault, the existence of a no-fault policy, the qualifier, liability, and damages. And in recent um, months, I've been seeing the arbitrators enforce the qualifier issue where they never used to. Uh, it used to be something to the effect of if the adverse carrier didn't really dispute it, then, you know, well, who cares? Uh, they're not arguing it. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, give you any guff over it, so sure, this case qualifies. Now they're looking for affirmative proof of the loss transferred qualifier, and they're basically treating it as a gateway to arbitration. Um, so, you know, when you're filing, I would specifically lay out in your contentions why this case qualifies for loss transfer, and then I'd submit proof of it. So, for instance, um, we've started pulling data from the Taxi and Limousine Commission of active license plates. And then we submit the police report saying, look, you know, this, this license plate begins with T and ends with C, and here's the same insured, and he's registered with the Taxi and Limo Commission. And, you know, you can see that license plate on the police report. You got to submit proofs now. Uh, otherwise, you're just asking for a 0% award. Um, the carrier can only seek loss transfer, not priority of payment disputes, and they can never be a respondent. So... What this means is that you can't go after your insured's automobile carrier just to move responsibility for payment around. Again, this is a negligence claim at arbitration. It's against the at-fault party. If you're trying to shift it around to your insured's automobile coverage, you're creating a priority of payment dispute, which Section 291A does not give us access to. Uh, by the same token, you can never be named a respondent to loss transfer. And I'm going to mention that briefly at the conclusion here. Things to watch out for in, gener in general for loss transfer claims. Attorneys are third-party administrators in their system. Don't ask me why they set it up this way. Electronic filing is mandatory. So if you want counsel on your loss transfer cases, your arbitrations, the ones that are actually going to arbitration, get started early on the approval process. Because your attorneys have to be, first they have to become members in the system if they're not already. Then you need to sign off on a TPA consent letter which can be done by another TPA. So even if you're a TPA administering the policy on behalf of a carrier, this TPA consent letter actually has to go to the carrier. And then it needs to be signed by somebody with the, um, a director or senior level executive with the power to bind the company to a nationwide contract. So it's gotta go pretty high of the organizational ladder for the loss transfer um, TPA consent letter to be applicable. The, you know, the short version, this could take five to six months to get done. If you want an attorney on a loss transfer case, get started on it now. 
Uh, remember the rolling statute of limitations. Some of your payments might not be timely. Some others might be. It's three years from the date of payment, not three years from the date of loss. Pro tip, always ask for a rep at a hearing. Uh, it gives you a chance to feel out what the arbitrator's reservations are. They typically don't take any more than five to ten minutes. You know, you'll get to hear the other um, you'll get to hear the other carrier make their arguments for why they're not liable. You'll get a chance to respond. It's just way more personal uh, and way more subject to you know persuasion than just desk arbitration. A word on no-fault suits against the employer and carrier. I don't know if any of you guys have been seeing these. If you haven't, be prepared to see them. They are a thing now. Um, there's a lot of them. What's happening is you're having, you know, uh, provider as assignee, AAO, claimant versus insurance carrier or self-insured employer or TPA. And they're suing in, you know, Kings County Civil Court, Queens County Civil Court, you know, these small, uh, small claims courts for no-fault uh, actions. So if you get one of these, if you're a workers' comp carrier and you get served with a civil suit in small claims court against you by a provider assignee, well, just remember the Insurance Law 5104 bar suits for basic economic loss. So number one, no, this isn't a thing that happens. Additionally, sections 11 and 29.6 of the workers' comp law bar suits against the carrier by the uh, claimant. So if, you, if it's a provider filing as a signee of the claimant, why would they have greater rights than the claimant? The claimant couldn't sustain this action if they had filed it. Uh, so it's barred by 29.6 and uh, 11 under comp exclusivity. And the carrier cannot be a respondent to loss transfer. No-fault carriers are not part of the HIMP process. If you have a question on what that is, uh, there's a couple webinars out there. I'm always happy to talk about it. It's how health insurers get reimbursed for amounts the comp carrier should have paid. Um, so what is the right answer here? Is the no-fault carrier stuck if they pay comp or if they pay benefits that they realize later should have been the responsibility of the worker's comp carrier? If comp is primary to no-fault, why are they stuck footing the bill? Well, believe it or not, the answer is not that easy to find. It's a really esoteric section of regulation uh, number 68, and it doesn't even really specifically address the topic. It just kind of gives you guidelines. So 65.15Q31, if a comp claim is denied in whole or in part, so that includes if you deny an MG2, for instance, that doesn't just mean that you, know, you raised all issues of controversy. It's like if you denied any comp benefits at all. Uh, the claimant has to execute a form NF9, and again, this is assuming the no-fault carrier uh, pays, which they are obligated to do under the law if we deny comp in whole or in part. So the claimant executes a no, uh, form NF9, which is basically their agreement to pursue the comp claim in earnest. They file that with the board. The no-fault carrier gets placed on notice, but they're not a party to the case, so they don't have appeal rights, and they get reimbursed out of an award to a claimant. So what happens is, you know, we deny um, no-fault benefits get paid in the interim. They have the claimant execute the NF9. The NF9 gets filed with the board. They get added as a party of interest. Uh, they get to sit in on the hearing, and basically we adjudicate those, uh, whether the no-fault benefits were compensable. If they are, the no-fault carrier gets reimbursed. Uh, and remember, the board has exclusive jurisdiction over compensability of medical treatment, so that's yet another reason why these no-fault suits can't happen. Uh, what to do if you get uh, one of these? Well, send proof of the workers' comp claim to the attorney, um, the attorney who filed the action, ask for a stipulation of discontinuance. This is your good faith effort to resolve it. Uh, if not, if it's not voluntarily discontinued, 
you go into a cost-benefit analysis and um, figure out how much you want to fight. If it's a couple hundred bucks, you know, if, it, if it's like $500, all right, maybe just give them 250 to go away if they'll take that. Uh, a word of caution on that, though. A lot of these no-fault attorneys handle claims in bulk, and the more you do that, the more you incentivize bad behavior. So um, if it's a pretty significant bill uh, and you're getting them all from the same attorney, I'd really consider putting your foot down and filing the motion to dismiss in lieu of an answer or an MSJ if you've already answered, uh, and then seeking an imposition of um, costs and sanctions uh, and trying to get reimbursed for your litigation costs, again, because you made a good faith effort to resolve it before it even got here. Uh, at a certain point, you got to hit them on the nose with a newspaper or you're just going get, to keep getting taken advantage of. All right, maximizing your reimbursement. Again, everyone, thank you for sitting through this. I know this is a complicated topic. Remember, loss transfer is better than a Section 29 lien if it's a clear loss transfer case with clear liability. If loss transfer is unavailable, look for the exceptions and exclusions to the carve-out we talked to. Remember to be proactive with regard to both the loss transfer claim and the Section 29 lien. Serve notices of the lien. Get started on authorizing your attorneys as TPAs for the loss transfer system early. Serve the intercompany reimbursement notification as soon as you pay benefits. There's no reason to wait. Um, coordinate efforts with defense of the workers' compensation claim. Ask yourself, if I didn't pay this, would another carrier have paid? That's like in the contents of the context of the Section 32. Protect yourself with well-crafted third-party settlement consent agreement or Section 32 waiver agreement. Um, a big one here, remember that you hold all the cards with a third-party settlement due to the Section 29.5 requirement for your consent or a compromise order from a civil court in which the action is pending. So I'd consider calling these guys bluffs and allowing the civil court to adjudicate the lien. It's relatively low risk to you because they're required to put together the Section 29.5 compromise order petition. All you have to do, you're, you're entitled to notice under 29.5 of the uh, motion. So you get served with the notice of motion. You just have to put together an affirmation uh, or affidavit in opposition uh, and then show up for all oral argument if it's granted. Post-COVID, most things don't go to oral argument anymore. So the onus is on them. Um, and then the best part is uh, the court is without authority to do anything other than follow section 29. So, you know, if they say, uh, oh, there's the made whole doctrine, or you guys are being unreasonable, and uh, this is bad faith, and I'm going to ask that the settlement proceeds be split three ways. No, that's not a thing. Arlene takes priority. We will get reimbursed first. The court will see it that way. They don't have any other choice. There is a whole line of cases saying this. So, all right, that was a marathon. I appreciate everyone sticking with me. I'm going to check to see if there are any questions. Uh, if we don't get to your questions now, always feel free to reach out to me. Uh, any of you who have talked to me before, you know I could go over this stuff all day. Uh, I love talking about this kind of material, so, all right. Questions. Unless I'm doing this wrong on GoToWebinar, it doesn't look like we have any questions. So, um, with that, I'm going to bring it to a close. Thank you so much for attending, guys, and I will see you next month.